Our text this morning is Romans chapter 9, and uh, we're still in verse 4, but let's read the context around it again, and let's ask the Lord for his blessing. Remember, this is the word of the living God. Let all who have ears to hear, hear and rejoice in the truth. I tell the truth in Christ, I'm not lying, my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, of whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises, of whom are the fathers, and from whom according to the flesh Christ came, who is over all the eternally blessed God, Amen and amen. Let's pray. Father, we recognize that we are standing on holy ground when we come to your word, and we ask that you would uh, draw near to us, that you would open our hearts and our minds to receive your precious word, your life-transforming word, that we would turn away from the people we used to be and become the fullness of the people of God that you've called us to be. Lord, we cannot do this in our own strength, but with you, all things are possible. Nothing is too hard for our God. Your arm is strong and mighty to save. We worship you in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, some portions of Scripture lend themselves to quicker uh, Progress and others, I would say, lend themselves to a more careful, slow, and fastidious time. And that's one of the times that we're in right now. The verse that we're considering, verse 4, is dealing with the privileges of Israel, the privileges that God gave to Israel. And there are many of them enumerated there. And these words are chock full of meaning. The covenants is a, is a whole study unto itself. And so over these last weeks, um, I've been endeavoring to just introduce the subject of the covenants as one of the peculiar blessings to God's people so that we would have some understanding of it and really to encourage you to launch into a deeper study on your own uh, after uh, having heard some of the foundational work that I'm attempting to give here on Sunday mornings. Paul's heart that he's expressing in Romans 9 is one of grief. It's one of great sorrow and continual grief for his brethren after the flesh. These are the Jews, those who are his brothers by blood, by birth. And he's grieving over those who are unbelieving, those who have these incredible privileges that have been entrusted to them, and yet they've not been fulfilled among the portion of Israel who are unbelieving. So Paul goes so far as to say that he could wish himself to be uh, accursed, cut off from Christ, that he would forego his eternal salvation if all of his brethren in his place could be eternally saved. And so this is his continual heart for the lost of Israel and really should be our heart as well as we uh, are seeking to pursue those lost sheep of the house of God, whether they be Jews or Gentiles. 
As I say, we are considering the covenants in particular in verse 4. And last week, we started to lay some groundwork for what these covenants are. And what we said is that the covenants are binding agreements. They are uh, arrangements or compacts between two parties. But the covenants that we see exemplified in the scriptures are compacts that are between unequals. Uh, they are patterned after or similar to those ancient Near Eastern treaties that were ratified so commonly that were called suzerain vassal treaties. Suzerain being a word for sovereign, the one who is the greater, is covenanting himself with the one who is the vassal or the client king who is under his authority. And the reason why these covenants are so important to understand is These are the agreements that God chose to use to bring his people into relationship with himself and to reveal who he is, to reveal his very character, not only as the creator of all things, but as the redeemer, the savior of the world. Peter Gentry and Stephen Wellam, in their excellent, very scholarly work called Kingdom Through Covenant, Um, have helped me tremendously with this whole subject of the covenants. They have identified that covenant is the central concept in Scripture, which really serves as a backbone, that which gives structure to the entire storyline of Scripture in explaining how God has chosen to relate to his people. And I want to share a quote with you from that book as follows. Quote, the covenants provide the structure and unfold the developing plotline of Scripture, and a detailed investigation of those covenants is necessary to understand God's eternal plan of salvation centered in Christ. Each covenant must be first placed in its own historical and textual context, and then viewed intertextually and canonically if we are truly going to grasp something of the whole counsel of God especially the glory of the new covenant our Lord has inaugurated. That is exactly my aim with all of us this morning. To introduce the the covenants and really show you how they sum up in Christ. And to do that, we really need to set them in their own historical and textual context first to understand how they would have been received by those who first heard these words And then compare them across the different texts of Scripture throughout the canon of Scripture from Old Testament to New Testament to see how they all find their apex, their center, their target in Jesus Christ, the one who fulfills the covenants. Now last time I pointed out that Paul used the word covenants in the plural in verse 4. And we asked the question, how many covenants exactly are there? There are different opinions on this very question. Some say that there are two covenants, as we understand the most basic of the Old and the New Testaments, which are given us. Others point to various covenants with Adam and Noah and Abraham and Israel as a nation and David and the Messiah and say there are many covenants. And yet others say, well, there's really just one great covenant of God, uh, which is eternal and which is unfolded over time, very much like an accordion would be one unit that's opened up, and as it's opened, more facets 
of that glorious singular covenant are revealed progressively over time. And that is exactly, I believe, the accurate representation of the covenants in Scripture. They are the one eternal covenant of God's grace unfolded over time so that we might know His glorious character as Redeemer and understand more facets of His glory over time. Now, last week when we looked at the covenants, we started to consider uh, several of them as laid out in Scripture. We looked at the, the covenant with Adam, even though there is no such language of the word covenant within the account of, in the garden in Genesis 3 or Genesis 1, 2, and 3. But the elements of the covenant are very much there. And I hope we saw that. We looked at the covenant with uh, well, before I go on to Noah, just with Adam, what, what did we learn with regard to that covenant? Well, we learned that Adam first entered into a covenant of works with God. He was uh, in a probationary period where he was being tested to see if he would obey the Lord completely. You may freely eat of all the trees of the garden, but of this one tree you may not eat, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For in the day that you eat thereof, you will surely die. There's the standard. There's the expectation that God gave and the punishment for disobedience. Well, of course, we know that Adam and Eve fell into sin by disobeying the Lord, and he does not kill them right away as they deserve. Graciously, he discloses to them elements of this covenant, this covenant of grace as it will come to be known, where though they fell, God has yet given hope to mankind. And He's done so in this way by identifying that there will be a seed born from the woman, Eve, who will ultimately crush the head of the serpent, Satan. And that He, the serpent, will only bruise the heel of this seed. The seed who is identified as a He. And that this redemption, this, this restoration of humanity has something to do with clothing Adam and Eve in these animal skins which required the shedding of blood. But there wasn't a lot more known than that, that, that God had shown them. And then we come to the time of Noah and the great flood. And, and after the flood, God promises that He will never drown the earth again with a massive flood. And he puts his rainbow in the sky as a sign of this covenant with all creation, all um, flesh, that he will never again destroy the earth in that way. And so God turns his bow of war upside down, as it were, in this rainbow facing heaven rather than the earth in order to create an environment in which salvation and redemption can be accomplished. This is a further disclosure of His great covenant of grace. And in that disclosure, He mentions to Noah that this is an everlasting covenant. This is an eternal one. One that had no beginning and that has no end. When we come to the time of Abram, later named Abraham in Genesis 12 and following, God discloses to Abram that He will give him and his seed a land. And a seed, a posterity. In fact, he promises to Abram that he will be the father of many nations and that all the nations of the world will be blessed in him. And this notion of blessing, 
I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. And I will make you a great name like the great ones of the earth. So a land, a seed, and a blessing are promised to Abram. He's also promised that he would be the father of kings, that royalty would come from his line. And he also teaches Abraham that there is a need for cleansing and separation from the flesh which was symbolized in that great sign of circumcision. That the flesh must be cut off if you are to be part of God's covenant community. The other very important thing that we learned from the Abrahamic covenant was that God's pledge to Abraham was not bilateral. It was not based on Abraham's performance, but it was unilateral. And God demonstrated that in that great ritual ceremony in Genesis chapter 15, where he puts Abraham to sleep. And then God himself passes between the parts of those dismembered, bloody animals in order to show that his promise to Abraham will be guaranteed by himself. It is not dependent on the work of any other man. It is unilateral. And God also finally pledges himself to be God to Abraham and to his seed. To be God to them and to be their protector and their great reward. Then we fast forward to Sinai. The covenant that was made at Sinai in Exodus chapter 19 and following And God reveals something of his holy character by bringing the law. He reveals more of what is acceptable to him and what is not acceptable to him. And he presents a frightening display for the people, these sinners who stand at the foot of the mountain and they observe the phenomena of holy God who has enshrouded this mountain in fire and smoke and earthquake and lightning and thunder and loud clanging sounds, trumpet blasts that are absolutely fearful. And he discloses that he gives his law in order to teach his people to fear the Lord, that they would not depart from him, that they wouldn't sin against him. And he gives a sacrificial system in his law to teach the people that though they sin, there is a system in place for their sins to be addressed that the sin of the people requires the shedding of blood in order for them to be pardoned. But this pardoning is not a complete pardoning. This is a temporary ritual covering of sin that can never ultimately take away their sin. It points to a greater sacrifice of one who is yet to come, this Messiah who himself must lay down his perfect life as a substitute for the guilty. And in giving the law to his people, he knew that they would not be able to obey it. He knew that they would not be able to obey it because the core issue is always the heart with God. Anyone who tries to obey the Lord without a new heart that loves the Lord is destined to, to failure because they are operating in their own strength. They are operating by the letter of the law and they're completely missing the spirit of the law. Those who have no heart to love the Lord are not obeying the Lord at all, though they try with all their might. They have effectively effectively entered into a covenant of works, just as Adam had originally, and not the covenant of grace. 
but those who are able by the divine enabling with this new heart to turn to him in repentance after seeing their sin and who are able to confess their sin and return to the Lord and obey him with a motivation of love from the heart, a desire not to dishonor him, and who actually do obey him as the pattern of their lives. They are the people who evidence that they have entered into this covenant of grace because they enter not by their works, but by God's work. The work of the new heart in them, which is producing faith and love and obedience and the fear of the Lord. These are the things that we learn through these initial covenants that are disclosed. Today, we're going to look at the covenants with David and with the Messiah. And we're going to ask the questions, what is the Davidic covenant? What did God want to teach his people through his covenant with David? And what is this covenant with Messiah? And why do these covenants matter today to to you and to me in the church? That's important. Those are the questions that I want to address with you today. So to get us queued up to the next point of the covenant with David, you remember we left off last time in Deuteronomy chapter 30 with God describing those who enter into his true covenant and into his oath rather than their oath, their promise. They are the ones who have entered into this covenant of grace And there is a description of what that looks like in Deuteronomy chapter 30. But immediately after this, in Deuteronomy chapter 31, there is this sad account where the Lord says this to Moses concerning the people in verse 16 of Deuteronomy 31. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, you will rest with your fathers, and this people will rise and play the harlot with the gods of the foreigners of the land. Where they go to be among them, and they will forsake me and break my covenant which I have made with them. My anger shall be aroused against them in that day, and I will forsake them, and I will hide my face from them, and they shall be devoured. And many evils and troubles shall befall them, so that they will say in that day, Have not these evils come upon us because our God is not among us? And I will surely hide my face in that day because of all the evil which they have done, and that they have turned to other gods. And then he instructs Moses to write down a song, the song of Moses, which you'll see in Deuteronomy 32. And what is this song? But it is a witness against the people when they rebel to show them exactly what they did, to remind them that they have sinned against the Lord. Verse 26 says that it may be a witness against you. Verse 27, for I know your rebellion and your stiff neck. If today, while I am yet alive with you, you have been rebellious against the Lord, then how much more after my death? Verse 29, for I know that after my death you will become utterly corrupt and turn aside from the way which I have commanded you. And evil will befall you all the latter days because you will do evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger through the work of your hands. That's always the issue, loved ones. The work of men's hands versus the work of God's hands. He does not accept the work of men's hands in any form or fashion. Only the work of God is what he accepts. 
So this is no doubt a, a, this is a, a low point. This is a sad account of what is going to happen to Israel in their future. And what we see next is that Moses does hand the baton of leadership off to Joshua, and Joshua begins to lead the people into the promised land. And the first half of the book of Joshua is all about the conquest of the land of Canaan. The second half of the book describes the division of the land among the 12 tribes, which fulfills the Abrahamic promise that God will give a land to the people of Abraham. I want you to listen to uh, Joshua chapter 21. Joshua chapter 21. Verse 43, So the Lord gave to Israel all the land of which He had sworn to give to their fathers, and they took possession of it and dwelt in it. The Lord gave them rest all around, according to all that He had sworn to their fathers, and not a man of all their enemies stood against them. The Lord delivered all their enemies into their hand. Not a word failed of any good thing which the Lord had spoken to the house of Israel, all came to pass. This is the fulfillment of the promise of the land to Israel. It came to pass, and Joshua affirms it here in Joshua 21. Now, at the end of Joshua's life, this is just a couple chapters later in chapter 23, he gives his farewell address. Listen to what he says to Israel in verse 3. He says, you have seen all that the Lord your God has done to all these nations because of you. For the Lord your God is he who fought for you. See, I have divided to you by lot these nations that remain to be an inheritance for your tribes from the Jordan with all the nations that I have cut off as far as the great sea westward. And the Lord your God will expel them from before you and drive them out of your sight. You shall possess their land as the Lord your God promised you. Therefore, be very courageous to keep and to do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses, lest you turn aside from it to the right hand or to the left, and lest you go among these nations, these who remain among you. You shall not make mention of the name of their gods, nor cause anyone to swear by them. You shall not serve them, nor bow down to them, but you shall hold fast to the Lord your God as you have done this day. Now, that's an important testimony. This generation... The second generation with Joshua was by and large faithful to the Lord. They were not perfect, but as the pattern of their lives, their hearts were engaged with the Lord and wanting to serve Him. And that was blessed. That was a blessed time in Israel's history. And so he's going to say, take careful heed that you love the Lord in verse 11. This essence of the true covenant is that you would love him so that you don't depart from him in your heart. But then the warning comes that if you don't, he will destroy you. He will kill you. Look at verse, chapter 24 and verse 14. This is a final admonition to the group. Joshua says, now therefore fear the Lord, serve him in sincerity and in truth, And put away the gods which your fathers served on the other side of the river and in Egypt. Serve the Lord. And if it seems evil to you to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served that were on the other side of the river. That's a reference to Abram and those in Ur worshiping pagan gods. 
or the gods of the Amorites, the gods of this land in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. So the people answered and said, Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For the Lord our God is he who brought us and our fathers up out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage, who did those great signs in our sight and preserved us in all the way that we went and among all the people through whom we passed. And the Lord drove out from before us all the people, including the Amorites who dwelt in the land. We also will serve the Lord, for he is our God. Now, remember back to Deuteronomy 31. You are a stiff-necked people. You will turn away from the Lord and rebel against him. But this next generation was by and large faithful. The Lord was talking about what's coming next, this next generation after them. Look what he says in verse 19. But Joshua said to the people, you cannot serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions nor your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after he has done you good. And the people reaffirm, no, we will serve the Lord. But this ominous statement in verse 19 is very important. You cannot serve the Lord. You cannot serve him in your own strength by the sheer willpower that you have to serve Him. No. You must serve Him from a new heart, and that is an act of the work of God in you. Impossible to men, but very possible with God. So Joshua makes a covenant with the people in verse 25. And this is not a a new covenant, but really this is a, a rededication to the original covenant. He's covenanting with the people that they promised to keep this covenant of grace and enter into it because the Lord has heard all the words which were spoken. Now, after Joshua dies and the judges, uh, the elders who outlived him, were told in Judges chapter 2 that there arose another generation in verse 10 of Judges 2 after them who did not know the Lord, nor the work which he had done for Israel. Then the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals, and they forsook the Lord God of their fathers who had brought them out of the land of Egypt, and they followed other gods. This is the beginning of the period of the Judges. And the period of the Judges is a sad one because the theme, the motto, or the headline is everyone did what was right in his own eyes in the period of the Judges. And the cycle in the period of the judges is that the people of God sin against him. God sends chastening to them by allowing foreign nations to destroy them. The people repent and they cry out to the Lord for help. And then God raises up a judge, a deliverer, who will rescue them and rule over them for a time. And that's the period of the judges. That brings us up to the time of 1 Samuel And when 1 Samuel opens, the worship of God is corrupted by the high priest, a man named Eli, because he will not discipline his sons, Hophni and Phinehas, who are described as worthless and vile men. And God prepares Samuel as the last of the judges in order to rescue his people. In 1 Samuel chapter 8, turn there with me. 1 Samuel chapter 8, we have the account of Israel demanding a king. 
Listen to verse 1. Now it came to pass when Samuel was old that he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn was Joel and the name of his second Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. But his sons did not walk in his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain, took bribes, and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Look, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now make us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. So Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, Heed the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me, that I should not reign over them. God gave them the desire of their heart. These people wanted a king after their own heart who would rule over them just like the other nations of the world, that Israel would be able to go out and come in as a mighty nation, one with a mighty army, one with great wealth, one who would have a a renown, a reputation among the nations of the world. And this is the thing that displeased the Lord so greatly because he had been their king all along, ruling them, leading them faithfully, and yet they rejected him in favor of someone after their own heart. And so Saul is the one that is selected. He looks good on the outside. He's a a head taller than everyone else. He's handsome. He looks like a natural leader. But the administration of Saul turns out to be a, a total disaster for the nation of Israel. And when Saul fails to obey God, he, he seems to start well. He seems to start with a measure of humility, giving God glory for victory. But then quickly he shows his true heart, uh, one of pride, one of self-worship rather than God-worship, one who is willing to listen partially to the Lord but not completely obey him. And God rejects him from being king, and he quickly appoints another in his stead. He appoints a man after God's own heart, a man named David, a boy really named David, a shepherd boy who is the youngest of eight brothers, the sons of Jesse. He's not much to look at. Samuel himself, when he goes to appoint David, is confused about who this king should be. He thinks it's one of the older brothers because of his outward appearance. And the Lord says, don't judge by outward appearances, Samuel. The Lord doesn't see as man sees. The Lord looks on the heart. And so David is selected, this one who's described as ruddy, he's red-haired, he's bright-eyed, he's good-looking, he's a shepherd, he's, he's strong, but, but he's, he's a boy still. And God chooses him to be a king because this will be the one who is loyal to the Lord in heart. And God brings King Saul and his three sons to a tragic end and a shameful death on the battlefield. And David is officially anointed, and he begins to reign. And as he begins to reign, one of the first things he does is he establishes Jerusalem as his capital city. He finally drives out the Jebusites who had been dwelling in Jerusalem who were supposed to be driven out by the tribes earlier And they were not completely driven out. So David drives them out, takes the city. It's called the city of David from this point on. And then in 2 Samuel 6, David brings the ark of God to Jerusalem. And he places the ark in the tent 
in the tabernacle as if to bring the glory of God, which was represented by the, the, the glory on top of the lid, as we talked about before, between the angels, the cherubim. The glory of God had departed. Remember previously in 1 Samuel, God was leaving. His presence left Israel. But, but David brings him back and puts him front and center, as it were, and shows this is the true God. This is the true God. God of gods, the king of kings, and I am simply his vassal king, here to do his will. And that's the context in which God makes his covenant with David. Right after David brings the ark back front and center, look at 2 Samuel chapter 7 with me. This is the covenant with David. Now, it came to pass... When the king was dwelling in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies all around... That the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells inside tent curtains. Then Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But it happened that night that the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go and tell David, go and tell my servant David, Thus says the Lord, Would you build a house for me to dwell in? For I have not dwelt in a house since the time that I brought the children of Israel up from Egypt, even to this day but have moved about in a tent and in a tabernacle. Wherever I have moved about with all the children of Israel, have I ever spoken a word to anyone from the tribes of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the sheepfold, from following the sheep to be ruler over my people, over Israel. Now stop there for just a moment. There's not, you won't find the word covenant in this passage, but the elements of the covenant are here. You remember one of the key elements of the covenant is this rehearsal, a rehearsal of the history of what the greater has done for the lesser. God here is rehearsing what he has done for David in taking him from the sheepfold, uh, from a shepherd to being king. And there's no mention of any works that David did to earn this. This is simply an act of God's grace that he set his hand upon him and he set him in this position of leadership. He says in verse 9, And I have been with you wherever you have gone and have cut off all your enemies from before you and have made you a great name like the name of the great men who were on the earth. This is blessing that God is describing to David. God has protected him from his enemies and destroyed his enemies. He's fought for him. Verse 10, Moreover, I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them, for they may, that they may dwell in a place of their own and move no more. Nor shall the sons of wickedness oppress them any more as previously. So this begins the section of the obligations. This is what God will do for David. And there's a response of what is expected down below in uh, verse 14. We'll see that in just a moment. But I want you to notice, first of all, that God is describing the land here. I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them a place of their own. Why? So that they move no more. He's describing permanency, isn't he? He's describing positioning his people in a place where they will never be moved. I hope what you're seeing here is the land, the seed, and the blessing that God promised to Abram 
is being fulfilled here with David. He's saying, look what I have done for you. You are ruler over my people, Israel. They have multiplied. They're a great nation at this point. God has been faithful to his promise to multiply his people. He's also fought for his people. He's demonstrated his blessing to them. And he's made David a great name. And then he's brought them into the land, hasn't he? We read that in Joshua chapter 21. All of that promise was fulfilled. What's so interesting about this verse, though, in verse 10, is that this promise of the land is yet future. Do you see that? He says, moreover, I will appoint a place for my people, Israel. That's very interesting since they've already settled in the land and the promise has been fulfilled. What is this land that he has in mind that he will plant his people in never to be removed from again? Well, that tells us something really important about God's promise of the land. It tells us that it's not just a physical promise. It included a physical promise of land, but there's more. You know where we see the fulfillment of this? This is Hebrews chapter 12. I'm not going to spend much time here, but just to give you a quick taste for this. Written to the New Testament church, he says, you have not come to Mount Sinai. You've not come like Israel did when they were um, unconverted to stand before the mountain and to cower before God who is holy and you are sinful. No, you as the elect and those who have been born again, you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels. The church has been born again, born from above. You are seated now in heaven with Christ, Ephesians chapter 2. So the fulfillment of this promise is yet to come and is experienced by us today, brothers and sisters. This is the fulfillment of the true land. You are planted in heaven. You will never be removed from there. This is the spiritual component that is beyond what the the land as a type merely pointed to. Coming back to uh, 2 Samuel chapter 7. There's more of that kind of thing as we read here. Look at the blessing in verse 10 and 11. He says uh, that they may dwell in a place of their own and move no more. Notice this, nor shall the sons of wickedness oppress them anymore as previously. The wicked will not dominate them or afflict them anymore as previously. Well, after this time, Israel will be afflicted and oppressed by many nations. They will be taken into exile by Babylon for 70 years. They are not free of oppression at this point in their history. And so there is yet a future component to this promise. Yes, I have blessed you in delivering you from your enemies to this point. But there is a further blessing of deliverance from Israel's true enemies. What is that? Who are they? Brothers and sisters, that's the world, the flesh, and the devil. That's our sin. That's what we've been learning in Romans in our Roman study. Just to give you a quick example from Romans chapter 6, verse 14, For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. If you are in Christ, you're no longer ruled by sin as your chief enemy. You've been brought out from under His dominion. General sin no longer commands your obedience. That's what we learned in Romans 6. And in Romans 8, For the law of the Spirit of life, Romans 8, 2, in Christ 
Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. You've been freed from the controlling power of sin and death. Neither has sway over you anymore in a dominating sense. They don't own you anymore. You've been released from their power. That's what was being typified back here in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Israel would be one day released from their final enemies. And then come to just one other quick thing on that. There is, I would say, a partial fulfillment today in the church through that promise that we are not under um, sin any longer. We still have sin in our flesh, don't we? It's not till the new heaven, the new earth, when sin is completely eradicated, when we're given new bodies that cannot sin, that's when this promise is ultimately fulfilled. Just coming back to 2 Samuel 7 and verse 11, notice this. This is now the new component that we're going to get into in these verses of this covenant with David. There's clearly been a reiteration of the previous covenants, namely with Abram and the land, the seed, and the blessing. Yes, the physical have been fulfilled. Yes, there's something still future to this, to the fulfillment of those. But look now in verse 11. At the end of verse 11, also the Lord tells you that he will make you a house. A house. That's a word that is used not just to mean a physical structure, but a word that means dynasty. It's a word that means um, uh, a people, a family. In fact, it's the word that's used in Genesis 12.1 when the Lord said to Abram, get out of your country from your family and from your father's house. Not literally from the structure of the house, but from among your people to a land that I will show you. So this is what God is promising David here. He will make you a house. And notice this house is described in verse 12 as a royal one. When your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. Kingdom. That's royal language. Why is this important? This may just seem like a reiteration of the seed. God is going to establish his, his seed with David that they're going to continue. But actually something much more profound is in view here. Messiah, who was originally promised back in that embryonic form in Genesis 3 as the seed of the woman, where does he come from as man begins to propagate on the earth? Well, we're told from the time of Abraham that kings would come from him, but that's still broad. How many people come from Abraham? Jacob, when he's dying in his farewell address to his son, says this to Judah, one of the twelve sons. Now, he says, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the people. A scepter, lawgiver, that's the language of a king. He is going to come not just from Abraham, but he's going to come from the tribe of Judah specifically. But Judah is still a massive tribe. So you fast forward to Micah chapter 5, verse 2. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are least of the thousands in Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me one who is to be ruler in Israel. My king will come 
not just from Judah, but from Bethlehem, the birthplace of the king David. See what's happening here in this covenant? God is narrowing down that his Messiah is going to come through David specifically, through his family. Look at verse 13. He shall build a house for my name. Well, David had many sons, but we know in redemptive history the next son to rule is Solomon, and he builds a great temple, the greatest temple ever, for the name of the Lord. That comes to pass. And I, the Lord speaking, will establish a throne of his kingdom. That's true of Solomon. Forever. That's not true of Solomon. This king who comes from David will be an eternal king, a one who lives forever. He's not just talking about an ordinary man. He's talking about a divine king who will be born in the flesh as a human. Verse 14, I will be his father and he shall be my son. That's very significant because God had only promised to Abraham, I will be God to you. I will be God to you and to your seed. But here he discloses, I will be his father. This is an intimate relationship with this son. He shall be my son. And if he commits iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the blows of the sons of men. Well, we certainly see that take place with the sons of David who ruled, who were sinners. God chastened them. But that's not true of the one son to come who is divine, who was born sinless, born of a virgin, and who lived a perfect life. His name is Jesus Christ, loved ones. The only man who ever lived a perfect sinless life who fulfilled this prophecy, who was never chastened by the Lord in terms of um, disobedience. Look at verse 15. But my mercy shall not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I removed from before you. His mercy would endure with David's son. Now, when we look at the history of Israel... What we see is that David's physical throne didn't last all that long. It lasted a couple of generations. David ruled, then Solomon ruled, and then Rehoboam ruled. And when Rehoboam ruled, the kingdom was split. David, the, the house of David, no longer ruled over all Israel anymore. Israel was now divided. They were two kingdoms, two separate kingdoms, two separate worship centers, north and south. Israel is called the north, or the north is called Israel. The south is called Judah. And David's line does continue through the southern kingdom for a time. But what happens is that God raises up the Babylonians because Judah is given over to idolatry. And he chastens them by sending them into exile. And the man that he raises up before he sends Judah into exile is Jeremiah. And Jeremiah prophesies for 40 years through the last five kings of Judah. And after that, David's physical throne ends. It ends. And it never is reconstituted again, physically. Um, what we see is that after the captivity, the 70 years when they're in exile, Israel's then brought back into their land, but they're brought back in under the leadership of governors. Zerubbabel and Ezra, and Nehemiah. These are governors. They're not kings. Zerubbabel is from the household of David, but the others are from the tribe of Levi. And then the next two centuries demonstrates that Judah is governed by high priests from Aaron's family. And then when we come to um, 
just before the birth of Christ, the nation had been governed by many foreign powers. They were governed by Persia, by Greece, by Egypt, by Syria. And at the time of Christ's birth, they were under Roman control. It was the government specifically of the Hasmonean family, who were also known as the Maccabees, that were ruling the, the house of Israel. David's literal throne never revives in history. That tells us something about this promise to God, a promise of God to David. It was not just of a literal physical throne. Otherwise, it would have endured without a break. It would never have had a break. But God wasn't talking about a literal throne, was he? That tells us, that proves that very, very clearly. Now, hmm. What are we seeing in this Davidic covenant? Well, we're seeing that God has reaffirmed his core elements of the covenant that he gave to Abraham before him. The land, the seed, the blessing. The people are to be planted in a land permanently, though. That They are to have a complete and permanent rest from their enemies. And the promised seed is a royal household whose reign will never end. So the Davidic covenant really establishes that Messiah is going to come as an eternal king from David's family. And he will rule and reign with righteousness. Hmm. Um, When the people were brought into exile, the feeling, the sentiment of the people was very much captured in what we read this morning, what Brother Roy read in Psalm chapter 89. Did you notice how abruptly that psalm changed tone from this reciting of the covenant with David in the first half to Lord, you've cast us off and, and hated us. Um, Psalm eighty nine thirty eight. but you have cast off and abhorred. You've been furious with your anointed. You've renounced the covenant of your servant. You've profaned his crown by casting it to the ground. The people just felt the, the, rejected by God. Where is the, the Davidic line? Where is the promise of his throne? It's like his crown has been cast to the ground. You're not regarding us anymore, Lord. You've, you've overrun us and let us be ruled by foreigners. He hadn't. His covenant was still in place. His covenant fulfillment would be a spiritual fulfillment for this Davidic king in the Lord Jesus Christ who would rule and reign in the hearts of his people spiritually. That's yet to come in all its fullness when Christ comes. But for the moment, they felt rejected. They felt that he had turned aside from them. That really brings us to this next covenant, the covenant with Messiah. The covenant with Messiah. Now, the setup for this is that, um, as I say, Jeremiah was prophesying to Judah before they went into exile. They felt rejected during this time, the 70-year period when they're in exile. But it's in the midst of this woe that God brings a message of great hope to his people. And he brings it through Jeremiah the prophet. Turn to Jeremiah chapter 31 with me. Jeremiah 31. This is the message of the new covenant that's announced in the Old Testament. And I want you to um, just note a couple things here. This covenant is called the new covenant in in my Bible. The heading is the new covenant. You'll, You'll see why, because the description is this is a new covenant. But it's also called the Christian covenant or the messianic covenant. It's all the same thing. Listen to how this reads, starting in verse 31 of chapter 31, Jeremiah 31, 31. 
Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they all shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and their sin I will remember no more. And then he goes on to say in verses 35 to 37, If the ordinances that he gave, the sun, the moon, could be removed, could, could stop functioning, could just drop out of the sky, so too would the seed of Israel cease from being a nation. He's tying his faithfulness to this group of people, to his faithfulness to put the, the celestial bodies in the sky and to keep them there. They will remain. Now, um, that tells us that this is an eternal covenant, doesn't it? This is an everlasting covenant. The, the trouble with this passage <laughs> quite frankly, is that there are many in Christianity um, who believe that this is really uh, male, so to speak, for the nation of Israel. This is not for the church. Uh, so don't, you don't necessarily need to read this. This is a promise to them. This is not a promise to the church. This covenant, after all, is made with the house of Israel. You see that in verse 31. Um. I would consider those people brothers, dear brothers. They might call themselves dispensationalists. I would say they're faithful brethren. But I also would say that um, they are missing a very important element with regard to these promises and the church. Here's what I mean. Um, the dispensationalists believe that these promises and the ones to follow in the next chapters are still future. They're still to be accomplished for the nation of Israel. The nation was brought back after 70 years of captivity in Babylon, but after the destruction of the temple of Jerusalem in 70 AD, after the Lord came and went, um, the people were scattered through all the nations of the world, and they've never reconstituted and come back as a full nation into their own land. They're still dispersed to this day. And so the belief is, well, they will one day be regathered to their physical land. God is going to save the whole nation in a day. And that really is one of the questions that we're going to address when we get to Romans chapter 11. Is that, in fact, what he meant by that? Or what he means to do? But here's what is amazing about this passage in Jeremiah that I want to share with you today. The writer to the Hebrews in the New Testament copies this passage, Jeremiah 31, and he applies it to the New Testament church in Hebrews chapter 8. Turn there with me. Hebrews chapter 8. This is extremely important to understand. What, the, what's the purpose of this book of Hebrews? Well, it's written to the Hebrew Christians, but it's written to the church, the New Testament church, which is comprised of Jews and Gentiles who've come to faith in Christ to demonstrate that Jesus Christ is superior to all. He's superior to angels. He's superior to the, uh, 
priests in the Old Testament priesthood. And he is also the mediator of a better covenant that is founded on better promises than the one made at Sinai. Look at verse 6. But now he, that's a reference to Christ, if you read back to the beginning of the chapter, has obtained a more excellent ministry inasmuch as he is also mediator of a better covenant which was established on better promises. He is a mediator of better excuse me, a mediator of a better covenant. Not that he will be a mediator of a better covenant in the future toward Israel, the nation, which was established on better promises, not which will be established. Christ is mediator now of a better covenant based on better promises. So this passage from Jeremiah 31 is dropped in here. You're going to see it starting in verse 8 to demonstrate that Jesus Christ is the mediator of this new covenant, which was first announced formally in Jeremiah's day. And he as the mediator of this covenant is not the mediator for ethnic Israel per se, but the mediator for the church which is comprised of ethnic Jews as well as non-Jews, Gentiles. All those who believe in Messiah. They're together counted as the Israel of God, Galatians chapter 6. So this covenant in Jeremiah 31, this everlasting covenant, is for you, the church. That's why I'm taking some time to explain this the way I am. This is not just for the nation of Israel. This is for you. This is for me. This is your mail, so to speak. So it's important we open it and read it and understand it. This is the same new covenant that our Lord referred to at the Last Supper in Luke 22 when he said, taking the cup, this cup is the new covenant in my blood which is shed for you. This is the cup of the new covenant Arthur Pink, um, who is also really helpful in this area of the covenants, he wrote this insightful comment. He said, the writer of Hebrews quoted Jeremiah 31, the new covenant, and it's quite obvious that the passage would have no relevance whatever to his argument if the prophet were there referring to God's dealings with carnal Israel, Israel after the flesh, in a period which is yet future. That covenant is made with the gospel church, the Israel of God, on which peace rests forever. Now, look how this covenant reads. Verse 7, For if that first covenant had been faultless, that's a reference to the covenant made at Sinai, no place would have been sought for a second. Because finding fault with them, he says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they did not continue in my covenant, and I disregarded them, says the Lord. What was the problem with the, the first covenant, with the old covenant? Well, the problem wasn't the covenant itself. It wasn't God's word. It was them. They were the problem. They couldn't keep it. Why? Because they had no heart to keep it. They were trying to do it in their own strength. They disregarded God, and so God disregarded them. Covenant broken. But that wasn't the covenant of grace. That covenant is, is eternal and can never be broken. You know what's also very interesting about the language here, um, just as a passing comment, but in verses 8 through 10, this language of, I will make a new covenant, 
and then I, not like the covenant I made with them, but this is the covenant I will make. He uses three different words for make there. I will make a new covenant, verse 8, with the house of Israel. That word means I will bring to fruition. I will um, ratify. I will fulfill the new covenant with the house of Israel. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers. That's just a word that means I did. I, I, I agreed to with them. That was that covenant with the people when they said, we will obey you. But this is the covenant that I will make in verse 10. And there he uses the word that means testator, to bequeath a will when he says, I will make. This is the true covenant he's describing now, the the inheritance that the father has for the children. He says, this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. And then here are the features of this new covenant. I will put my laws in their mind and write them in their hearts. I'm going to put them in their minds and write them in their hearts. Where was the old covenant given? On tablets of stone, externally. So that the people in reading the old covenant had to interpret it through the faculties of their mind and heart which were corrupted and fallen. No wonder they could never come to a right understanding of it. They totally missed the spirit of it. So what God does in the new covenant, he writes his very word on the tablets of the heart. That's why he etched it into the stone in the Old Testament to show the stony heart is where this tablet needs to go. I need to write my word in your heart. The place of your deepest desire, your care, the place where you won't forget it. The place where you will desire to keep it and love it, appreciate it. Not just honor it with your lips and then walk away in your heart from it. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. That's a statement of sovereignty, of ruling, of dominion. I will be their God. I will rule them, in fact, in practice. And they will yield to me. They will walk in my truth as the pattern of their lives. None of them shall teach his neighbor and none his brothers say, saying, know the Lord. And that's a word of intimate knowledge, by the way. No one is going to need to convince you to know the Lord in an intimate way. Why? Because he himself will teach you and confirm his word to your heart. He himself will disclose himself to you, reveal himself to you. For all shall know me from the least to the greatest. No longer will this be a special privilege of just the prophets, the priests, and the kings, but everyone in the kingdom of God from the least to the greatest will know him intimately. Why? For I will be merciful, verse 12, to their unrighteousness and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. You will come to know the Lord in an intimate way when he forgives your particular sins and you know it. That's the only way you're going to come to know him as your Lord and Savior and as the Lord of your life when you know that he has forgiven your sins. You know why this is called a new covenant and not the old covenant? What, what really dawned on me in, the, in talking with Pastor Stan and in just spending time with this text, what makes the old covenant old is that it's based on the work of men. It's based on the promises of man, which all fail. 
It's old because it takes us back to the garden where Adam was first tested by his works to keep righteousness. It's stuck in that same rut. That's what makes it old. What makes the new covenant new? It's not based on the promises of men. It's not based on the work of men. It's based on the work of God and his promises. That's why it's new. It's new to us. We're so used to our work. We, that's all we know is what we can do to earn and to, 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 to achieve. And God is saying, all of that has to go away. You need to cease from your works and rest in my work by faith. And when you've done that, you've entered into the work of God. You've entered into the new covenant. It's new because it's new to you. And it's new to me. So, this bends the mind now when we think about Old Testament saints and the New Covenant. This seems to read like there is a chronology here, that there's a progression of time. The Old Covenant was old because it was chronologically old, but there's a New Covenant that came. Well, that's true in, in part. It's true because Messiah needed to come at the fullness of time. He didn't come until a particular time in redemptive history to live a perfect life and lay down that life as a, as a perfect substitute for his people's sin. So yes, the new covenant was chronologically new in a sense. But the bigger sense is, it's not based on the work of man, it's based on the work of God. So now, the Old Testament saints, were they saved by the new covenant? Yes, they were. The Old Testament saints were saved by the new covenant. The same covenant of grace all along. It's just that the New Testament saints have had a greater revelation of this covenant. More light has come as we see this is what God revealed in each of the successive covenants to show us the glory of this great covenant of grace. And there is a fullness of the privileges that the New Testament church has because the Holy Spirit has been poured out abundantly he has gifted all of us, not just the prophets, priests, and kings for particular service, but all of us for service in the kingdom of God through the body of Jesus Christ. So there's a special privilege that is accorded to the New Testament church, which is part of this new covenant that the Old Testament saints didn't share, even though they were still saved by the Holy Spirit. And they trusted in Messiah looking forward by faith. <laughs> We are out of time, and there's a lot more I want to share. Um, we'll, uh, we'll pick up next time, um, but let me just share this with you, and it goes back to um, what I read at the beginning with our corporate, or call to worship. It's Matthew chapter 13. Let me just close with this. Matthew 13. This uh, section that we read from verses 10 through 12 this is in the context of, Lord, tell us what the meaning of your parables is. Why do you teach in parables? And the Lord answers to his disciples and says, because it has been given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For whoever has, to him more will be given. And he will have abundance but whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. So the first answer to, Lord, why do you speak to them in parables, these, these sayings that come alongside the truth and that amplify the truth? Well, his answer is, to you it is given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. 
There are some who will see these truths because I've given you sight to see them. And there's others where I use parables actually so that they won't see, to blind them. So that even what they have will be taken away from them. The sight that they think they have, they're going to lose ultimately when they lose their soul. Therefore, I speak to them in parables, verse 13, because seeing they do not see and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. And then he quotes the prophecy of Isaiah that shows that it is the Lord who will dull their ears and close their eyes and harden their hearts so that they would not understand the word of the Lord lest they repent and turn to him. Verse 16, look at this. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. Now, this is in the context of you hear the truth of the parables. You you hear the truth I'm explaining to you, but what's the bigger context here? You are hearing the truth of the kingdom of heaven. Loved ones, that's the covenant of grace. You're hearing the truth of the covenant of grace. You've been hearing it all along as we look at the covenant with Adam and Noah and Abraham and Israel as a nation and David and then Messiah. What's happening? God is unfolding his truth, his glory, and you have eyes to see it. You're blessed. There are those who don't see it at all. Verse 17, For assuredly I say to you that many prophets and righteous men desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear, and did not hear it. Those are the Old Testament saints who didn't have the light that we have today. They had some revelation through the successive covenants that had been given them to that point in history. But you are truly blessed because you've now seen the coming of the fulfillment, the culmination of all these covenants, Jesus Christ himself. He's been He's come in the flesh. You've seen him. He's died on a cross. He's been raised from the dead, never to die again. And he has ascended to the Father where he is seated at the right hand with power, interceding for his saints. You know that truth. The Old Testament saints didn't have that knowledge. They didn't have that light, but you do. You've seen more of the covenant of grace than they have. How blessed are we, loved ones? You see what's being said here? This is all about God's disclosure of himself. He uses covenants as the vehicle, the backbone to help us understand his storyline. And it all is fulfilled in this wonderful Lord Jesus Christ. Are you trusting in him this morning? Do you know him as your Lord and Savior? In other words, not just do you call on him as Lord or profess to know him, but do you actually obey him? Do you walk with him? Do you enjoy walking with him? Do you walk in the light of his countenance, his face, and love the light of truth? Perhaps you don't know the Lord this morning. If you don't, repent. That just means change your mind. The way you've been thinking about everything is wrong. Let the truth of God's word permeate you and believe him. Believe his word that you are a sinner worthy of hell under his wrath and that it is only this Blessed Lord Jesus, the fulfillment of the covenant, the the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, who died on the cross for sinners such as you and me. And if you believe that message, the Scripture says, if you confess Him with your mouth as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. May it be so, Lord, among all of us here this morning. May there not be one lost. Amen. And let's pray. 
Father, we, um, we stand in awe of your word, your glory that you have caused to pass before us. Father, our eyes have seen um, the glory, more glory than Israel in the flesh ever saw with your wonders and your displays of the miraculous, your mighty signs that you did, which could never change the heart, that heart of stone. Lord, it must be broken by the hammer of your word. It must be melted with the heat of your glorious sun. And Father, this is the glory that we see in your word. We see Jesus Christ. We see that he is the exact representation of the glory of God. When we look at Christ, we see you. Father, we, we want to see more of your glory. Thank you that you've opened our hearts and our eyes to behold these mysteries, these wonderful things that you've hidden from others. Lord, thank you that your, your promises are not just to one nation on the earth, but are to the nation of God, a spiritual nation that is made up of all nations of the world. Every tongue, every tribe is represented there. And Father, we are all before your throne because you have seated us in the heavenlies with Christ where we worship you universally. Lord, forgive us for how trivial we can be in our lives, focused on things that do not matter at all. Lord, redirect our eyes to you and to the truth of your word. And may we live to the praise of the glory of your grace. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.